everyone, this is Jacob Joyce. Welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail, third episode in our series of music from pandemic years here, and today we're talking about the year 1910. 1910 turned out to be a, a cholera pandemic year, mostly in Asia. We've seen a lot of these cholera pandemics. It seems that that was the pandemic disease of choice throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, apparently, and 20th centuries, I guess. So a little bit of just pertinent history about the year 1910. In actual history, not a particularly eventful year or period. We were on the eve of, of World War One, and so all of the the simmering in Europe that was going on leading up to that was certainly was certainly happening, but we still find ourselves in a period of relative political stability in the countries that will be pertinent to this episode. Franz Joseph is still the emperor in Austria. He had been the emperor for many, many years since way back to the revolutions of, of 1848 from our first podcast. And so the Habsburgs were still the, the power of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a, a somewhat conservative, uh, religious empire. And in Vienna, we had this, this figure who had risen to, to power. He was the mayor of Vienna around the turn of the century named Karl Luger. And he was... Uh, not a nice guy. He was an early kind of pan-Germanist nationalist. These ideas that eventually would lead lead to the rise of of the Nazi Party, and he was also anti-Semitic. So, not a good guy. He was the head of in Vienna what was called the Christian Social Party. That was kind of the conservative wing. But at the same time, you had this party, the Social Democrats, emerging based on the ideas of of Karl Marx and others. And so we were still in a period of relative stability, but it's going to come to a head soon in, in real events. In Paris, our other pertinent city for this, this episode, also relative peace, but in both Paris and in Vienna, there were artistic movements going on in the world of the arts that were really radical and big upheavals of conventions that had been set up in the 19th century. In Paris, this was called the Belle Epoque, and this was kind of the end of the, that refers to the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And you had painters like Monet, Gauguin, Picasso, a young Picasso, all working there, changing radically the face of, of what modern painting looked like. And in Vienna, actually, you had this, this, pronounced radical artistic movement called the Vienna Secession, headed up by artists like Klimt. You might know the painting The Kiss. That's that's Klimt. That's a secessionist piece. And they were really anti the idea of... If you've ever been to Vienna, there's this big ring around the city. And there are all these buildings on the ring that are very conservative architecture. They give the impression of a bygone era, kind of decadent in many ways. And the secession was against everything that this ring architecture represented, representative of kind of a backwards-looking Viennese society. And so the undercurrents of revolution were current, were, were definitely there, especially in the musical world. And as we've discussed on this podcast before, I often find that 
musical revolution precedes actual upheaval or, or revolution in, in society. And so that's where we were. We were in a relatively uninteresting period of history, uh, soon to be very interesting, but an incredibly interesting period in the history of music. And so we'll jump in with our first composer. I wanted to cover this composer because he's really one of the most important composers in the history of music. You may hate his music, you may love his music, but there's no denying his importance in music history. And that is the composer of by the name of Arnold Schoenberg. And as I mentioned, music was really, it was almost fracturing at the seams uh, at this at this period in, in the early 20th century. And Schoenberg was the one who really broke it, basically. He, he just took everything that we thought about standard conventions in music, not everything, some things, and completely turned them on their head. We should actually talk about what he what he did and did not do. But the piece that we're going to be covering from Schoenberg, actually, I'm, I'm kind of stretching this because it was semi-written in 1909, not fully written in 1910. So, But luckily, I am uh, the sole content creator here on this podcast, so I can do whatever I want. So I, I chose to uh, include this piece because I think it's important. Written close to the year 1910. And this is Schoenberg's Five Pieces for Orchestra, very important piece, and we should talk about what was going on in Schoenberg's development. Because Schoenberg actually started out a very hyper-romantic composer. He thought of himself as kind of a disciple of the composer Richard Wagner. And some of his early works are highly romantic, highly Wagnerian. There's this amazing piece called Leader, which is this big oratorio cantata super romantic, dazzling orchestration. But then he started to change, and this change started happening around 1905. And he started using something that music theorists, musicologists have called free atonality. And this free atonality was the idea that, if you remember, we've discussed before on this podcast what tonality is. We have these things called keys, A major, A minor, C major. Those keys use a scale. They set up a hierarchy of pitches, and they provide us, practically speaking, with a home base where we kind of know where we are in the grand scheme of things. It provides tension. It provides resolution. Any pop song that you know pretty much is is tonal. That's why you know what is coming next, what you're going to sing. And atonality is exactly what it sounds like, the absence of tonality. And to do that, you have to strip away this hierarchy of pitches. And so you have 12 pitches, there are 12 keys on a piano before it repeats itself that are available, and none of those is really any more or less important than any others. And so you stop using all of these conventions of, oh, this pitch follows this pitch, this chord follows this chord. And it creates music that probably is familiar, at least in the kind of sound world, to all of our listeners, atonal music, the stuff that often to people on first pass just sounds bad. That's what Schoenberg was doing. He was writing with free atonality. Now later, I'm not sure if we'll cover it, but 
But later he actually developed a system for writing atonally called the 12-tone system. And this was a system that allowed him to write fully stripped of any references to tonality. And we don't need to go so much into the theory of all of that. But with the 12-tone system, he was able to write pure atonal music from like a theoretical perspective. So there's no inkling of any sort of hierarchy. At this point, he was still... Some people call this his Expressionist period, if you know the German Expressionist painters, like The Scream is a famous one, kind of heightened expressivity and pain and turmoil expressed through this free atonality. It wasn't so codified, and so there are still allusions to tonality, which we'll talk about here, but he was free to do what he pleased. And this was a huge, huge development in the history of music, because up till this point, tonality had been king. And this was really like, let me break this. Um, Now, the other thing to know about Schoenberg is that he viewed himself really, really strongly as a disciple of the Austro-Germanic tradition. So we think of the Austro-Germanic compositional tradition going Bach, Mozart and Haydn, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Schumann, Brahms, and then Schoenberg. And so here's where we should mention what he what he broke and what he didn't break. Because aside from tonality, a lot of the other elements of Austro-Germanic composition, he kept and he kept very strictly. So his adherence to form, some rhythmic elements of his composition, all of these things, he remained very much connected to the Austro-Germanic tradition. So he wrote concertos, he wrote suites, he wrote Baroque dances, all of these things, they were just highly atonal. And he said about himself, I do not attach so much importance to being a musical bogeyman as to being a natural continuer of properly understood good old tradition. And that's not a sarcastic comment. He really felt that way, that he was not... He wasn't trying to break anything. This was the logical next step for the Austro-Germanic tradition. Because over the course of the 19th century, we see tonality getting expanded. We see chromaticism, the use of all 12 of these notes, becoming expanded. And so he felt just the the next natural step was to move into complete atonality. So big, long introduction for this piece, but it needs it because it's so detailed. This is one of the challenges for a lot of listeners with Schoenberg is that to really perceive even what's happening, you often need several listens. So much happens in so little of a time. And it feels almost like academic music in a way because it's almost easier to understand when you set it out in front of you with the score and you look at it for a really long time. And so to perceive this music in real time is really, really hard. So don't be scared and don't be put off if if you don't feel like you get it on the first listen. But let's listen to a little bit. I'll demonstrate how challenging it is to you. Let's listen to a little bit of the first movement of these five pieces for orchestra.
So I would encourage you actually, if you want, to go back and try to listen to that short clip a few times because, and, and just listen to it and don't have any expectations of what you're supposed to get out of it. Just try to hear it. Um, because it's, it's challenging music. I'm not going to deny that to you at all. This is from the first movement. It's called Premonitions. The titles of the movements were actually added well after this piece was originally written. But one thing that I try to tell people about Schoenberg's music or a, a little clue into listening to this is it feels like there are so many ideas hitting you so fast. And... They're atonal, and so they're harder to perceive, and it sounds just dissonant. But if you listen to that clip a couple times, you'll hear a lot of gestures, rhythmic motives, uh, small ideas that by themselves, if you don't listen to the actual notes, but you listen to the, the contour, the rhythm, whatever it may be, they actually might make a little bit of sense. They actually sound, this is what the part of Schoenberg that's connected to other members of the Austro-Germanic tradition. They actually sound like kind of familiar musical ideas. We heard these kind of slightly soaring melodies with, with this rising and falling contour in that clip. We heard this very fast rhythmic idea that sounded like a ball bouncing or something. And so if you listen to this music in that way, and you try to kind of just hear the ideas then it can actually create this kind of modernist collage that I actually think is very interesting. And that collage is in some way heightened by this, this atonality because the notes that you're hearing really, by definition, don't make a lot of sense to you. And so you're freed up in a way to, to listen to these other parameters of music because you have no tonal home base to listen to. And so you, you have to kind of train yourself, force yourself to glom on to other things that are going on here. And that's, I think, in a way, the, the purpose of this. So in any case, I think you can listen to this music with, with an ear for also feeling and expressiveness, because all of that is there. It's just behind this different kind of guise of, of atonality where we don't, we, we've been stripped of one of our most familiar ways of perceiving that kind of expressiveness doesn't mean that it's not there though and so i'd encourage you if you want to go back listen to that clip a couple of times and really try to focus in on small ideas on gesture on rhythm that might help to make a little bit of sense of what's going on there's one other movement that i want to play for you in this piece because it is a really famous example of another concept that Schoenberg introduced. He didn't actually, he wasn't the first person to use this idea. In fact, there's a brilliant one in Mahler's Fourth Symphony that I can think of. This exists all over the place, but it's the idea of what he called Klangfarben melody. And that means sound color melody. And so again, in his quest to limit the parameters that he could use to write with, he decided, okay, let me strip myself of writing with melody. This is not by any means the first time we've seen this. If, if you've listened closely to this podcast, Beethoven did this many times. The, the second movement of the seventh symphony is a study in how to write without melody. And so this is not an unfamiliar concept to us, 
But Schoenberg had this idea, okay, instead of writing a melody that we all know, this, the things that we can hum, I'm going to write a melody through changing sound colors. Because the idea of a melody is it's changing notes. That's what makes a melody. But what if we keep the same notes and we change the sound color? So first we play it with an English horn, then we play it with a flute, then we play it with a violin. That's the idea of Klangfarben melody. And he wrote an entire movement of this five pieces for orchestra. The title it was given is Farben or Colors. That kind of changed. It, that, the title of that movement has gone through many iterations. But it's a study in Klangfarben melody. And so I want to play for you the beginning of this this third movement. And here, if you're listening to, to Klangfarben melodies or any Schoenberg in general, one thing to really try to grab onto is the colors, the tone colors of various combinations of instruments. Because that's all you'll really have to go off of here because that's the only thing he's changing. The rest he's going to keep the same. So here's the beginning of this third movement of the five pieces for orchestra. So hopefully you can hear in there, there's this one chord that's being passed between various combinations of instruments, and so it's creating this kind of undulating collage of, of sounds. Maybe you don't buy that idea that that's a real melody, but that was Schoenberg's idea, is to create a, a makeshift melody in the absence of real melody through changing timbres and things like that. Now, one interesting thing about the chord that you were actually hearing there, and this is what differentiates Schoenberg's free atonality from the 12-tone music that would come 10 years later, this chord would not be allowed in 12-tone music because what we have here actually is two tonal chords. What we're hearing at the same time is... So the sound that you're actually hearing all together is. Now that might just sound like a collection of notes, but if I separate out a few of those notes, what we get is. Now that's, that's what we call a major chord. You can hear. It sounds harmonious. We've probably heard something like that before many, many times. And at the same time, we're hearing this. It's a minor chord, also tonal, also something we'd expect. And so what he's doing here is actually a window into our next piece. If you happen to li listen to our review of Bartok's Wooden Prince, you would have already heard about this. But the idea of polytonality, which was a another different way of composers expanding 
the ideas, the scope of what tonality could be, but not using just a complete atonal system where we just take it all away. Instead, we're taking this new approach. We're hearing two tonalities at the same time. Together, they create something of a dissonance, but when they're separated out, they're actually very harmonious. And this would not be allowed in the 12-tone system because to have pure, you know, filtered atonality, you can't have any implications of a key. So you can't, you can't really hear this because that would give this pitch that pitch sounds a little bit like our home bass. So we want to avoid that completely in the 12 tone system. But in this free atonality system where he was still in his kind of expressiveness period, anything goes. And so that was still allowed. And we get this polytonal chord that serves as the chord, which we're going to vary through various timbres in this Klangfarben melody. So that's just a, a really fast overview of Schoenberg's five pieces. We only heard clips from two of the movements. It's actually an excellent piece, and I love, I recommend the second movement to our listeners. It's short, but it's really taxing because there's so much stuff there to listen to. So it's good to listen to it in individual movements, go back, listen a couple of times. But this brings us, it's a nice segue to our other piece, our big piece today on our review of the year 1910. And that piece is Stravinsky's Firebird. Stravinsky is probably the single most important modern composer in the history of music other than Schoenberg, maybe even more important than Schoenberg. But he kind of, in, in many ways, represented everything that Schoenberg did not. Where Schoenberg embraced a tonality, Stravinsky was all about finding other solutions that didn't involve a tonality. Still expanding the tonal scope, but we're not going to take away the idea of keys, the idea of home bases. We're going to find other approaches. From a young age, Stravinsky was, was a pretty prodigious composer, and he was recognized, he, he grew up in St. Petersburg. And at one of his early concerts in St. Petersburg, there was this impresario there named Diaghilev, who is one of the most important figures in the history of music. And he saw a concert of Stravinsky's, some of his early works. And Diaghilev was the head of something called the Ballet Russe. The Ballet Russe was this ballet company in, uh, in Paris, this Russian ballet company in Paris, and they premiered, performed many, many of the most important pieces of classical music and, and premieres in the early 20th century. So Prince Igor by Borodin, Scheherazade they did from Rimsky-Korsakov. They also did the premiere of Daphnis and Chloe. A really, really important ballet company. And so Diaghilev heard some of Stravinsky's early technicolor, brilliant orchestration works. If you want to hear some great early works, you can listen to Stravinsky's Fireworks or um, his Funeral Song. These are all great pieces. But Diaghilev commissioned this young Stravinsky to write a big ballet for the Ballet Russe. And Stravinsky made this massive, massive burst onto the scene with the Firebird. Now, let's quickly summarize the plot of, of The Firebird, just so you know, because it is a ballet after all. 
There's this character named Prince Ivan. He wanders into a forest. He ends up coming across and chasing this firebird and capturing her. But he lets her go, and so she gives him, as a token of her appreciation, this magic feather that can summon her at any point. So he walks into this forest, and there's this evil demon, Katshe, who rules this forest. And he's enchanted all these princesses to do his bidding. Ivan, of course, sees these princesses, falls in love with one of them, so he confronts Katshe. Katshe summons all of his minions, uh, has them you know, attack Ivan, and Ivan uses his magic feather to summon the firebird. Fi- the firebird makes Katshe's minions do this like elaborate dance. She enchants them in turn, and then they fall asleep, and Ivan goes and destroys this, this egg that is the key to Katshe's. It's like the ring, whatever, the, the last horcrux that, that destroys Katshe and all of these real beings that Katshe has enchanted come back to life at the end. It's kind of Medusa-esque that he, like, enchants all of these creatures or petrifies them or whatever to do his bidding. So let's listen to a little bit of this music. It's a, it's a long, full ballet. Stravinsky compressed it into some orchestral suites and that those are really the orchestral highlights and that's what I think most people know and love but the whole ballet is this dazzling display of of orchestration of technicolor writing he's just a master of using the full symphonic orchestra and so we'll we'll hear some of that but I want to hear the very famous beginning to this piece and this will highlight one of the many things that Stravinsky is doing here, but if you happen to listen to our episode on scales and modes, that'll be very helpful for this piece as well, because again, Stravinsky is using a tonal system here, a way for us to kind of be able to have a home base as to where we where we are harmonically, tonally, but he's not only using our standard tonal forms. In fact, the entire beginning of this piece He's using this thing called an octatonic scale. If you're curious what that is, you can go back and listen to that scales and modes episode. But let me play for you a little bit of this beginning where he creates this totally new sound world through this use of the the octatonic scale. So as I mentioned there, Stravinsky is using an octatonic scale, which sounds like this. It's what gives it that kind of mystical quality instead of a normal major scale or something that sounds like this. Much more standard, bright sounding world there. But this entire beginning is in this octatonic, mysterious world that conjures up this this image of 
of a mysterious opening, this kind of dark forest. And a lot of this piece uses the octatonic scale. A lot of this piece uses elements of the whole tone scale. As we mentioned previously on that episode on scales and in our review of the Bartok Wooden Prince, this is very similar in some ways because he's using interesting new approaches to tonality without stripping music of tonality like Schoenberg did. So let's listen to one of my favorite clips from this piece as well. An excellent demonstration in my mind of the great, great orchestration that Stravinsky is able to employ in this piece. And what I mean by that is interesting choices of combinations of instruments, interesting colors, sounds that are coming out of the symphony orchestra. You know, this is not just all played by the strings. These are interesting and unique combinations of instruments here. So here's where the firebird first appears. Excellent, dazzling moment of orchestration. Stravinsky's disposal that was not at the disposal of composers like Beethoven or even Brahms was the invention of new instruments and things. So you heard at the beginning of that clip the celeste, and that was an instrument that Beethoven never used, Brahms never used. Stravinsky is also using the harp a lot in this this passage, some interesting techniques for the, the woodwinds. And so as players developed greater ability on their instruments, but also as instruments evolved, composers were able to do more things with the orchestra, and Stravinsky really took full, full advantage of that. That's why he's able to create these these incredible colors. So the next clip I want to play for you is the round dance of the princesses. This is where Prince Ivan sees one of these beautiful princesses. And I want to play this for you because This clip is really solidly in the key of B major, and hopefully you'll hear that very unlike the music of of Schoenberg, you'll notice that this is tonal. You can feel a home bass. It's something that feels much more harmonious and familiar. And And Stravinsky is using keys. He's not averse to writing tonal music. He's just unlike a composer like maybe Beethoven, who if a piece is in B major, they're gonna stick to B major maybe a couple of closely related keys. Stravinsky's going to go all over the place. He's going to use different scales. He's going to change from B major to C major in a heartbeat, no problem. And so there's still tonality there, but it's much more exploratory, much more free. But again, this is this is a very tonal clip. And so written in the same year as this five pieces for orchestra, but in a way couldn't be more more starkly different. So here's the round dance of the princesses. Thank you. 
So yeah, it's a beautiful melody. I hope we can hear the, the tonality, the harmoniousness of that melody. So I want to listen to one more, just one of my favorite passages from this piece that doesn't get highlighted in the suite. And so I wanted to highlight it here because it's in the full 1910 version of the ballet. This is a long clip. This is from the Magic Carillon. This is uh, when Katshe's guardians appear. Katshe uses this, this bell tower or something to summon them, and they start dancing, attaching, uh, attacking Prince Ivan. As you'll hear in this clip, you don't, you don't need to be able to, to really notice this, but you'll hear a, a different mysterious sound world again, and it might evoke images of that creepy beginning, and that's because, again, this passage is very reliant on that octatonic scale, very different from the music you just heard. But I also love this because it's, it's I think, one of the best displays of, Scher, uh, of Stravinsky's excellent, excellent orchestration. You'll hear incredible colors in this passage. A little longer clip, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So here's the, the magic carillon from, from Firebird. So there again, it's an excellent demonstration of the heightened ability of musicians at the time to be able to play their instrument because there's some really virtuosic writing. We also hear this figure. Which again is purely octatonic. That's a, a motif that keeps returning. And it's it's got that mysterious quality because... Again, it's in that in that octatonic realm, not our normal diatonic scale. So then we get the the really famous infernal dance. This is one of the most famous passages from from this piece. It's in the suite, the later suite, the compression of all of this music. I won't play any of it here because I I just encourage you to go listen to the whole thing. And really, if you can listen to the 1919 suite. It's about 20 minutes, and it was in Fantasia 2000. It's, it's really famous, and, and people, people love it. It's one of the best pieces of music anywhere. But I want to play a little bit of the finale when everything has resolved itself. And here we actually get a little bit more of a clue, I think. It's kind of a veiled critique in some way of Schoenberg. Maybe not even super conscious on the part of Stravinsky, but 
this this kind of nod to the varying and divergent tracks that music was taking. Because the finale of this piece, it's one of the most triumphant finales. I'm not going to play the very end, which you should go listen to, because it's one of the greatest endings to any piece. But let's listen to this beautiful horn solo melody towards the end. And again, I think you'll hear very tonal, very harmonious. This has a key as well. So first of all, this is one of the most beautiful horn solo, I think the most beautiful horn solo ever written. This whole finale to this this Firebird is, is just totally magical. And it's, I mean, one of the most incredible pieces ever, ever written. But also I think there's potentially a little veiled critique here or broader, more profound artistic statement. The idea that this piece, this Firebird piece, actually does have a key, and it's the key of B major. And you remember, we heard this clip earlier, the round of the princesses. That was B major. We actually hear a lot of music over the course of this piece that hints at B major. And it turns out, I think, and, and keys closely related to B major. And so... For me, in all of this meandering, all of this exploration, this use of the, the octatonic scale, this use of the whole tone scale and all this stuff, it actually turns out that, that the Firebird has a key, and it's, it's the key of, of B major. And it takes us a long time maybe to realize that, but a standard kind of Beethovenian idea, which, which we can trace all the way back to to Mozart even, as we've talked about so many times, is this idea of Sturm und Drang, struggle to triumph, or the idea that you arrive at this triumph at the end of the piece, and that triumph is confirmed by the final arrival of the real key of the piece. And so Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony, although it's called in C minor, the real kind of key that we're aiming for and the key that we arrive at is C major. And we go over this big, long expanse to arrive at that key. And so I've always, it, it's very interesting to me that this piece, The Firebird, a Russian composer, not in the Austro-Germanic tradition at all, and didn't see himself that way. In some ways, he's actually writing music that honors one of the core tenets ideas of this tradition set up from Bach to Mozart to Beethoven. And in that same arena, the composer who viewed himself as, as the natural inheritor of that torch has stripped that from his music entirely. Now, of course, there's, there's other elements, like Beethoven would have never really written a ballet. He wrote what, The Creatures of Prometheus, but, but the whole genre of kind of program music and this technicolor orchestration, all that stuff, that was very much more uh, 
a result of, of composers like Liszt, of Wagner, the New German school, very anti-Beethoven, anti-Schumann, anti-Brahms. But there's this one element in Stravinsky that I think is is a is a kind of adherence to tonality in a way that confirms that he's really against this whole atonal idea of Schoenberg and that he wants to keep tonality in music. Now, one of the most interesting things about this is that Stravinsky said that himself many times, that he, he was very anti this whole 12-tone system. He was not a fan of Schoenberg. But somehow, at the very end of his life, Stravinsky, almost out of nowhere, started writing these pieces that were 12-tone. So some of his latest pieces, this ballet Agon, for example, um, it's a 12-tone piece. And this composer who underwent, in his own right, just like Schoenberg, many stylistic transformations through neoclassicism, through all these iterations of his style that were constantly changing, but that he always kept this, this adherence to tonality. Even this guy wrote 12-tone music at the end of his life. Very perplexing. But in any case, this was one of his earliest pieces, The Firebird, which would set off a chain of ballets that he would write, Petrushka and the Rite of Spring, all at the Ballet Russe, which would be these massive, massive pieces in the history of music. Rite of Spring was so massive in 1913 that it, it caused a riot right before World War I. So in any case, that's our review of, of the year 1910, a very interesting year in the history of music. And shortly after, we would get some very interesting albeit terrible developments in the history of the world. So we will be back with another year in the same decade because this is such a rich decade for, for the history of music, some other interesting composers that we'll be bringing to you shortly. As always, I want to thank you for sticking with us. Hope you've enjoyed these two amazing, amazing pieces of music, and we will see you back here soon.